What's going on, everybody? Welcome to the show. This is Real Reality Realness with Sean Ellis Rogers, the podcast where I, your host, Sean, dive deeper into reality television than most people watching feel is necessary and replace stand culture with the protocol of the Human Resources Department. Join me five days a week as I dissect your favorite shows while getting to know my favorite content creators and personalities through their connections to reality TV. Lock in while I clock in, because we are about to get into it. Alrighty, welcome and welcome back to the show. This is Real Reality Realness. I am Sean Ellis Rogers and I put the mess in the message. I am so excited to have this person on the show today. They are the host and creator of the Marsh's Plate podcast and I cannot wait to get to know her better. Ladies, gentlemen, and every gender or lack thereof in between, join me in welcoming to the show, Diamond Styles of Marsh's Plate. How are you doing today, love? I am good, Sean. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Thank you so much for taking my call and making some time for me in in your schedule. I genuinely appreciate it. No problem. Thank you so much. What are you most looking forward to in 2023 so far? Oh, gosh. Um, Can we cuss on this podcast? Please. (laughs) (laughs) I am looking to continue to avoid bullshit. I am looking to continue to enjoy my life to the fullest as to peak fullness as I have been in the past um, year. 2022 was an amazing year for me where I've done things that I had never done before and accomplished things that I had never accomplished before. And it just was an amazing year. And so I want to continue that momentum and um, bring that same energy to 2023, you know, accept even more amazing things and without you know any kind of bullshit that is incredible congratulations on all the new things that you've accomplished thank you of course what are you leaving in 2022 what am i leaving the bullshit but (laughs) to be (laughs) to be more specific um i want to do more of protecting my peace in regards to I've been an activist for a very long time I think my first you know stint of activism was when I was like 17 oh really oh really like 16 we built that ramp when I was 16 so about 16 one of my one of my mentors got robbed and shot in um at an ATM and it paralyzed him and I kind of rallied to get a ramp built for his house to make his house more accessible to his wheelchair and um and we got the funding and built the ramp for him when I was like 16 and so to me that kind of fed my what I thought about activism so yeah so I've been in some kind of work capacity as far as you know activism for a very very long time and so 
when you get older, it leads to you having these kind of heated conversations with people that are against your ideology. And that can be draining. And so um, what I've got, especially when the internet came around, because you're exposed to all these um, strangers, exposed to, you know, many, many different people's minds. And so what I have decided to leave in 2022 is really, yes, you're going to always have, you know, yes, I'm going to go to legislation. I live in Texas. I'm going to go to Austin and kind of argue with some people about legislation, maybe. But them kind of frivolous, don't matter conversations in the comment boxes, them little frivolous um, conversations on Twitter, them little frivolous, uh, silly arguments back and forth with some people on um, on Facebook. I am not doing that anymore because most of the time when you give, no matter if you, how in depth and knowledgeable you are in your talking points, you're not gonna move those people. So don't waste your time. Plus they don't have any effect on your life. So spend your energy um, in your self care or, you know, moving people who matter. I truly, truly relate to that. I think I went through that shift last year when it comes to the way that I approach making content because um, I haven't done anything in the realm of activism close to what you've done. Thank you for your contribution. (laughs) Um, Most of my real activism on my own front has been more so like on on social media, speaking in the comments, speaking on my YouTube channel and, you know, talking about the inadequacies and the nuances within the pop culture space. Um, And I really took a hard turn this past year and I decided I was like, okay, I can't fight for people who don't want you fighting for them. I can't fight for people who don't want you talking on their behalf. I can't convince people to want better for themselves. Um, I can't convince people that, you know, we're stronger in numbers and when we, you know, make a fist we strike a mighty blow if you will uh-huh. <laughs> but you know so I was like at this point I can't speak for communities anymore I can only speak for myself as a member who who happens to fall under these umbrellas but I can't speak for black people I can't speak for trans people I can't speak for third gender identities I can't speak for you know people with no eyebrows I can only speak for me Come <laughs> hello <laughs> Right here with me all day long, honey. <laughs> um, what is the biggest thing that you've learned in the last year that you're applying to your approach going forward? Gosh, the biggest thing that I've learned about the work or about just life period? Um, I'll let you choose. Um life period is that i need to reevaluate some of my um spending habits <laughs> um i i have ran through somebody last year child that i didn't need to run through it and i don't have anything to show for it no 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 that's not true i do have things to show for it but experiences and um and you know some nice things um but there was 
there were some better things that I could have done. And we're not talking about, oh, I should have invested in stocks. So I should have, you know, we're not talking about LLC Twitter and LLC Instagram. No, we're just, there's some other um, things that I could have um, spent my money on that would have been more um, enjoyable for me. Cause I'm all about things that are enjoyable. And then, and so because I'm an impulsive buyer, there was some things that, um, you know, I, I regret purchasing. And so that was, I, I'm really good this year. I'm also really going to be really, really conscious about what I buy. And I'm not, like I said, I'm not talking about, oh, I'm going to save and da-da. no, I'm going to buy things that I need. There's some things that I bought that I just really didn't need. And so I'm going to really, it, it could be something frivolous, but I need this frivolous thing. And so, um, yeah, that's one thing as far as in the work, I have to be a visionary. I really have, you really, really, if you want to change this world and your own particular life, you have to be a visionary that thinks bigger than you and think bigger than what you think you are capable of because you are somebody who, you can do bigger. And and I'm not talking about stressing your ass out. Don't stress yourself out. That's not what I'm talking about to the point of no, no care for yourself, but just you can, what you imagine that you can do, you can go even further because you have, you have the power, you have the will and what you can do is your legacy and everything that you contribute to the world is way bigger than what you actually think that it is. And so I started to imagine doing things that I felt like was impossible to me and seeing how I can figure out to do them. And so, Recently, I took um, 12 women to Hawaii for a retreat and to record some content um, about connecting cis women and trans women because I kept hearing conversations about that kind of versus cis women versus trans women. I don't really like that because in my particular life, I have been in allyship with gay men, cis women, um, cis men, um, cis black men. And there are, yes, it's, just, it's some bad apples in all of those groups, absolutely. But consistently I have been able to build um, relationships with them. And so I wanted to do some work around emphasizing um, that relationship and our um, comradehood. And so in my brain, I really wanted to, um, you know, do something more. And that trip was me doing more and me doing, um, you know, just doing it in a way that is more powerful and bigger than I imagine. And so that's what I'm gonna focus on. That is absolutely beautiful. Let's go back a little bit. Um, when you were building that ramp for your friend at 17, was that the moment that you knew you were an activist or was there a specific moment in your life where you started defining yourself as that? No, there was a specific moment in my life that I started defining myself as that, but that moment was not. Those were just me being a, uh, a kid caring about somebody that was in my life at the time. And I was in community with people who could teach me how to do this. And so, for example, when that happened, there was a white woman who was kind of our, mm, almost like a counselor um, in, in this program that we were in. And she was like, and I, and I brought my mindset 
all, and this goes back to what I just said, as far as thinking bigger than what you can. My mind said, oh my God, um, I, I'm that's so sad that he got paralyzed. Like, I wonder what we could do to make his life better now that he's going to be in a wheelchair. And her having resources and having, um, you know, worked in philanthropy, she talked me through it. And I was like, oh, a ramp would be amazing. Now, mind you, I'm only 16, so I don't know how how to build a ramp. I don't know how to get the money to build. I don't know how much it would cost. And so she literally sits a group of us down. And the, the program that she worked for is called Youth as Resources. And, um, and she literally shows us how to make a budget, like figure out how much it costs, figure out the work that's entailed. She showed us how to make a budget. She showed us how to write a proposal of why um, um, this is important, why we wanted to do this and send that proposal out to certain people um, and see if we can get some resources for them from them to be able to do the work that we're trying to do. And literally, I'm an executive director now of a, of a nonprofit organization. And literally that lesson is literally what I do right now in my forties. And so that is, it, I didn't think of it as, as activism. I thought of it as I wanted to do something for somebody. This woman is teaching me how to do it. And then we did it. It just made me feel good. It, I didn't think of it as activism. It just it just felt like I was doing something for my one of my mentors. It didn't feel like activism. Um, the first time that I felt like it was activism is when I sued my high school and won. When I sued them to go to the prom um, in a gown. And that was when I that was when I was 17. That happened when I was the the ramp happened when I was 16. When I was 17, my when graduating from high school, um, my principal basically told me that I couldn't go to prom in a gown, and I sued them. Um, I, I sued them, and I won. And so that felt like activism. That felt like I'm doing this for the future, for the people who's coming behind me, because I was about to graduate. <laughs> and so and so and I actually wasn't gonna go to the prom she didn't know that if she would have just not said anything I wouldn't have went to the prom mm. but because she was being a BITCH right. <laughs> she she actually put herself in the wrath of my pride and in the wrath of my um um youthful rebellion like she, if she would have just said nothing i would not win a prime if she, but because she said you can't do it because you're not a girl <laughs> you have to go to the prom in a suit as a boy then all hell in me broke loose like no you're not gonna do this this is unfair da, 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 da. so then it turned into um it was pride it was um youthful arrogance you're not gonna tell me what i can't do um not you know that's just what it was and so i won and it sparked something to me that said oh because everybody said that i was loose <laughs> so i won and yeah that was my first time feeling like an activist wow what do you think the most fulfilling part of this work is for you as an individual the most fulfilling um moments of fulfillment i don't know uh, if it's consistent but moments that i feel like it's not in vain um i don't want to say fulfillment because i'm an underpaid 
nonprofit worker. So I am not fulfilled in the sense there's st stuff that I want. I don't, nobody's paying for my healthcare. I literally had to stop my medication because I can't afford it. And so I am an underpaid um, <laughs> worker for the community. So I don't want to say I'm fulfilled, but moments of fulfillment for me is when people in the community reflect back to me and affirm to me that my work is not in vain. It affected them in some kind of positive way. So for example, um, that moment when I sued my high school, I, there's somebody on my friends list that went to high school with me, a gay white boy who, when we were in school, he just was this kind of quiet, I know who he is, like I visualize who he is, but because he was so quiet, there was no, um, we don't have any memories together. You see what I'm saying? So I, there's nothing, we didn't do anything that I remember, but I remember him going to school and being very, very quiet and shy. But fast forward years later, when we're in, when I'm like 35, he sends me a message and says that because of your boldness and who you were in school and your pride and who you are, it allowed me to accept myself and be open and come out and be queer and proud of it and not be scared because I was so scared back then. And I couldn't do it in high school, but I was able to do it um, at this big age. And I wanna tell you that you are one of the people who um, you know, gave me the strength to be able to do that. So that's one moment. And then even, on YouTube when I um I started YouTube in 2008 that's when it wasn't really popular that's when it wasn't um uh, you know this thing this money machine that it has become nowadays um when it was when we weren't getting paid for it when partnership was it was invitation only and there wasn't a lot of partners and nobody was making but only few people was making money off of YouTube and so um People will slide in my inbox and say, when I was 13 or when I was 11, I started watching your videos because there were no black trans women on YouTube. You were the only one and you were sharing your experience. And because you were grown, you could articulate some things that I couldn't when I was a little kid because you were reflecting on my life. And I could share my mother, I could share to my mother your videos because you was a grown woman. My mama, who I was trying to get me to accept me, wouldn't listen to me. This is what this person is telling me. And so you, me being able to just share with you your video to my mom, explained it well enough where my mama can accept me now and we have an amazing relationship. And now I'm 20, 23, 28. <laughs> I've been watching you since I was 11, 13, da, 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 da. And so those moments really are fulfilling. They're fulfilling moments because it's like, oh, all that work I did back then, somebody was resonating with it. Somebody was getting some power. Somebody was getting some confidence. Somebody was getting the language to use to explain to people. Somebody was getting something to move their life forward in in being queer, in being a fat girl. You don't know how many times big girls have come to me and say, we have different circumstances, but the underlying feeling is there. The same way you felt when a dude is um, um, trying to come hit you up at three o'clock in the morning because you trans and being on the down low and treating you like you're not worthy of love, but will come fuck you is the same way they did to me as a fat, fat girl. 
And that underlining emotion made me understand your experience more. Those moments are the most fulfilling moments because it makes me feel like my, my work is not in vain. Even though I didn't see it happening, I, I'm getting reaffirmed about the work now 10, 15 years later. And so, yeah, it's powerful to me. That was just gonna be my next question. How conscious were you of the possible impact that you were gonna be having on people? Did you go into the work and into the things that you were doing thinking somebody's gonna see this and take something from my story or or um, or um, take something from my experience? Or was this just you doing something that was self-serving? And like, I just wanna get out my story for me. I just wanna, you know, create content for myself. Um, it was, I don't want to say self-serving because I knew people would see it and I had an intentional strategy. It wasn't about activism, <laughs> it, there, but there was a self-serving element. Um, I remember, just take YouTube. Um, I remember when I started, like, if you go back to my very, very first video, my very, very first video was posted on my birthday, February 28th, 2008. And so if you watch it, I'm just sitting in front of a camera and talking about my trans experience with family, like just just something about that. And the reason why th th that was my initial conversation is because when I got on YouTube, I transitioned when I was 13. And so by the time I get on YouTube, I'm already 26. And so the people that I see on YouTube are new to transition. They just popped their first moan. They just popped, they just got they just got some kind of surgery. So what they brought to the YouTube sphere, I kept seeing titles like three months on testosterone, three months on estrogen. Um, it was all about the physical changes that a trans person get that they were documenting, which is a powerful documentation. But I had been so far, I had already been in the game for 13 years. You see what I'm saying? I had already done those things. In that process already. In that process. So I didn't have that to offer. So I was already coming to the to the um, to the platform with something different, and all I had to offer was my own personal experience about how I got my family to accept me. Um, more further along conversations with relationships, being married, being all those kind of things that um, it's just about life experience. And so when I brought that, people were like, "Oh, oh, this is a different type. This is what we we're gonna need later." Yeah. We, right. we we need uh, we need this kind of physical the medical transition part that's powerful powerful to know but this is how I'm gonna engage with my family and so I was going through a hard time in when I started my videos I was going through um, you know I had moved to Houston and only had a homeless only had it was fifty seven dollars in my pocket and um, couldn't stay at the women's shelter because I wasn't a cis woman, couldn't stay at the men's shelter because I was um, I was a liability. They said, if you get raped or attacked, you, you, that's on you because you can't take off that stuff. And, um, and couldn't stay at the LGBT shelter because I wasn't HIV positive and their grant only allowed them to um, help people who was positive. And so all the infrastructure in the city that was meant to help somebody who was having hard times at homeless would not help me. And so I was had to sleep on somebody's couch, got my own apartment, do sex work. And I was in this apartment alone with nobody and a camera, a, a grainy Logitech camera. <laughs> and so 
I pressed record and I posted the video on YouTube and it was like a journal of what was going on with me. And I just wanted to add my little drop in the bucket of what was happening in the in the content creating community at that time. And so it wasn't just me. Oh, I'm, yes, I wanted people to learn from what I was talking about, but it wasn't um, self-serving and but it also wasn't um, just self-serving it also wasn't just me trying to be Ooh, i'm an activist and i want to do this it wasn't that either right um elaborate on what the experience of sex work has on your development as somebody who interacts socially what did what did the experience of going through that have on your social skills and and interacting with people and how you developed relationships Oh wow, you um you would not see the person that you see today if it wasn't for sex work. Mm. Nothing. Nothing. Um nothing like me. Um sex work taught me how to love myself. Wow. Sex work validated me. Sex work I know people think, oh, sex work is about, you know, what people usually talk about is the survivalness of it. Like, oh, this I needed this money because yes, I got into sex work because I got fired from a job for being trans. And so, yes, there's a survivalness to it, but I'm talking about once you in it. So you got to imagine, okay, so being trans, you, uh, you your flaws as a, if you, depending on what, which way you're going. I, I was going from being a, a, a little boy to being a woman. And so, because um, I never grew to be a man because I started really early. <laughs> so I never say I went from a man to a woman because I never went to a man at all. Right. <laughs> and so, um, so it's about your flaws. It's about what you don't have that a cis woman has. That's the just the bottom line of what you get what I'm saying? Your early mind. So wh what makes you look like a man? What makes you masculine? It's all about your flaws and how can you get to the point of fixing them? With surgery, hormones, and da, da, da. It's all about that. You have people in your life telling you not to do it. You have people in your life saying that you're going to be ugly because you got big hands, you got big feet. You got, oh, I can tell you're a man because you're Adam's apple. I, I ain't never had no Adam's apple. <laughs> but they'll they'll say something they'll make up silly shit and it, it's all about how you're not going to be enough and so your whole life is revolved even in within yourself you're looking in the mirror constantly look like ooh, i see my v this little part right here that's a little that's a little masculine or well however you are examining yourself and this is not exclusive to a, the trans experience people are always examining themselves but as a trans person trying to navigate your safety and navigate the world in your new gender it's really really adhere uh, uh, apparent what you have to focus on so anyway i say all of that to say this when i come into sex work what is happening is these men are spending their hard-earned money admire yes it's objectified but they're spending their hard-earned money on you because whatever you are is enough for them to spend their money so whatever you are so yeah you may not have breasts today but i whatever you got i like it yeah you got 
And as you advance with the money that you're earning from them, they're praising you. Oh my God, I love this part of you. I love the breast. I love what you just got. Ooh, you getting real softer. Ooh, you look so feminine. You, the, the only people that who are giving me praise in this unadulterated way is people who are objectifying me. And so, the, and so for me, but I'm also using this money to pay bills. I'm also using this money for stability. And so there is a, a, a something that happens in you. And this is just my own personal experience. It's something that happens in me that if I'm, I'm I got these dudes paying me thousands of dollars to see me, to see me in my um, in my element, in sexy, in, you know, dress me up and take me out on dates, on fancy dates, sitting in, um, sitting in, you know, luxury hotels, sitting in luxury restaurants. And these men are treating me with respect, pulling my chair out. Why would I go and let uh, Jamal, <laughs> dusty ass, um, treat me like shit? How can I go back to that? Right. How can I go back to getting treated um, negatively by somebody who is not giving me a damn thing? You're not giving me nothing. You're not contributing to my survival at all. And you think I'm going to deal with your shit just because I'm trans, which is what I felt like before sex work. I felt like I just had to deal with men's whatever negative they came along with them. I would just have to deal with it because you're trans. You're less than a cis woman. You're less than, um, you're not a real woman. You're not, you're not real. So because you're this imitation <laughs> because you're this imitation, you have to take what you can get. But clients in the sex work industries taught me that if you can be worth it for them, you can be worth it for these motherfuckers. And so that is, it, it gave me the confidence to say, yo, if I can get money out of you and not just getting money, if I can get respect out of you and, and treat it well and have a standard because I know people are looking at, at clients and saying, oh, they're objectifying you. But as you, you are the business. And so you don't have to have clients that are disrespecting you. You can set a standard like, yo, you gotta do this if you wanna see me. You gotta do this if you wanna see me. You gotta take me here. This is the kind of hotel that I need to stay in. This, you gotta buy me a first class flight, not economy. You gotta buy me a first class flight if you want me to fly to you. And so there's a standard of respect that you can put up for them to even see you. And they adhere to it. And so certain dudes were treating me like a fucking queen. And because that's how I that's how I set up my business. You have to come to me correct. And so it taught me, sex works taught me how to value myself outside of the world's expectations. Like you have value even without sex, you have value even um, without money, you have value. And so set the standard of how they treat you and they will get in line with it. And so, yeah, it gave me confidence. It gave me confidence about business. It gave me access to luxury, a life, a life that was soft, a life that wasn't harsh. It gave me life to better apartments. It gave me life to better quality of, um, just better quality of life. And so I was able to traveling, traveling across the world, um, getting access to um, 
you know, people that I've never met, languages and cultures that I never would have seen as a hood black girl. My mama would have never gave me access to that world. I never, if I was just a regular boy or a regular girl, I would have been in the hood just with my mom doing my thing, doing like regular hood people do. But this work, you know, exposed me to a whole new life of opportunity. Fin helped me finish school and it just, it just changed my life. That's a very beautiful perspective. And I appreciate that you took that angle on it because, you know, we typically do hear tales of sex work being that woe is me or it's me struggling to get from one place to the other which your story entails but it takes a reclaiming of the objectification that naturally comes with that situation and places it on your own self-development and i think that that's a beautiful story to tell for people who are in that place right now who you know either don't know where to go from here, don't know what their next day is gonna look like, feel like they're doing this because they have no other options. I feel like it'll give somebody listening to this a different perspective on how to own your space in that situation. And, and it's I really- empowering. It's empowering. It's in, it's, it's, you're empowered to exploit this wrong in the world. Like I know men are objectifying, but I'm empowered to exploit them. <laughs> Just like they're trying to exploit me, I'm exploiting your pockets. I am, in, in, and I have agency over my body. I don't just have sex with whoever wants to have sex with me. Because, no, I'm in a position where I choose what clients I want to have. I choose when I want to have clients. I'm not getting up just because it's three o'clock in the morning and you got some money. No, you hit me in my, my time that I'm available. <laughs> There's agency that comes with it. And that's the and that's you know not necessarily the beautiful part of sex work, but I think that's the beautiful part of perspective and you know taking objectification and turning it into ownership, even in any situation. I think that's very important, and like you said, it's extremely empowering. Yes. So I really appreciate that that perspective. Um, talk to me about trans medical care as a 13 year old. Talk to me about the evolution of what trans care has come to today from back in the day. You're, uh, you're, as I like to say, a grown ass woman. Definitely. At this point in your life. So, you know, talk to me about what trans care was like and the access that you had from somebody who started at 13, 14, 15, as compared to what the girls have going on today. Okay. Um, so it was basically um, very, very low access. Like when I was 13, there was, first of all, I'm in a place where I'm in a community that does not accept this switch. <laughs> first of all, I'm, I'm not like somebody like a, a Zyaway who, not just take away her money, take away the access to money and just having that parent that says, I'm on, I'm in your corner. Not right. They, you, I didn't have that, and uh, and I didn't have a negative. I didn't have um, a negative where my mother was like, oh, you, "You're not staying in my house." Now my grandmother was like that, but not my mother. And so, um, but I didn't have a negative where it was like, "Oh my God, I don't have anybody." You gotta kick. I'm getting kicked out on the street. I didn't have that, but I also didn't have somebody say, "I affirm you," and this is okay to be. This is. It was. My mother was more like. I don't condone it, but I, you're my child, so I got to deal with whatever you got going on. So I'm just not going to do nothing. 
<laughs> and so there's a difference between um, having the support and having, you know, indifference or negativity. And so I was in a place where I, it was very indifferent. Nobody was helping me transition. Nobody was getting me in touch with doctors. Nobody was doing research for me. So from 13 to like 16, there was no surgery. There was no, um, there was no access to healthcare, hormones. There was no, no information. Like it, we didn't have Google. There was no Google to look up. We had the white pages and the yellow pages. This is 94. <laughs> and so um, we barely in Indianapolis, we barely had gay clubs that we had access to. And there weren't no separation. It was like the lesbian and the gays and the um, trans folks were all at the same place <laughs> when you did find it. And so in in that process, I had to I had to run across people for me to be able to learn about healthcare, me to learn about doctors. I had to accidentally run across people. How I learned about my first hormone doctor, I was on a bus stop and I had a hoodie on and I was hearing this conversation with these two trans girls. And I was like, oh, these are boys. Now I wouldn't have used this language now, but in my mind as a 13 year old, I was like, oh, I'm clocking them. And I'm like, oh, these used to be boys. So I'm amazed because this is what I want to do. Right. And so I'm like, oh, I thought that I was doing, cause I was wearing wigs. I was, but these girls have been on hormones. These girls don't got silicone. These girls, they look, they're looking the part. I'm looking like I'm just starting. <laughs> And so, um, you know, I'm see I'm hearing them, um, I'm hearing them and I'm clocking them, but I don't want to say nothing because I don't want to ruin um, their conversation or make them feel awkward. So I'm sitting there with my hoodie on just eavesdropping. And so they talk about this doctor named Dr. Garfield and I looked him up in the white pages and he was like a block away from my house. And I lied to Dr. Garfield and told him that I was 19 and wow. he didn't ask me for um he didn't ask me for id and so he just wrote me the prescription and and i went to cvs right right there by his by my our our, our place and and spent 52 dollars to get on hormones and that's how and at 16 how i started to get on hormones and so yeah it was it just we just didn't have access we didn't have the education we didn't have um, the access to the community like we did. Um, and so nowadays it's a whole turnaround. You have YouTube, you have Google. You, it used, you can just Google, there used to be this site called in-house pharmacy. You can Google and order hormones off the internet and they mail them to you. You ain't even gotta have a doctor. And so it was this site called TS Roadmap that would teach you how to change your name and they you, they would let you print off the papers to send to the courthouse and give you the fees and what, what you're supposed to do in your state. And they would give you that information. And so back then we didn't have it. And so now as time goes by, y'all trans people, non-binary people, whatever you wanted to do when it comes to medical stuff that you wanted to do, um, you just have way more access and education. You're not jumping into the situation 
blind. You're kind of you. People have been through this, and they are they've let their stories be out through books and education and internet and YouTube and blogs and da 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 da. So it's just way more information and way more doctors who are informed to do what you need them to do. Of course, talk to me about. What are your current feelings on the state of trans inclusion and acceptance in America right now? Um, I feel like this is our late 1950s civil, like civil rights. Mm. So like if I, you know how in the 50s, Black folks, the the tide was changing. It hadn't got to the peak, like in, you know, Selma and um, all those negative things where people were getting sprayed with holes, blah, 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 blah. Negative stuff was happening, but it hadn't got to that peak national conversation. Um, I think we're getting there. We're building up to this peak national conversation. Think about it. Um, pay, Pay attention. Really, really think about it. So politicians, when we talk to politicians about LGBT rights, the the question used to be prior to 2015, the question to see if they were down with the LGBT shit was, what do you feel about gay marriage? And their answer was the litmus test of how they were going to be if they were progressive or if they were conservative and so and so for me that's what that's how every not just for me but nationally that's how everybody knew but once gay marriage passed in 2015 what was the next question trans shit it was about what do you feel about the bathroom bill what do you feel about transgender people what do you what those now trans has become the national litmus test of how progressive a politician is. That's the new frontier because we already got gay marriage now. So we don't, now we got to switch to something else, something else to rally our base. And that's on the Republican side and the Democrat side. And so 2016, when um, Trump was get Trump was on the campaign and Hillary was on the campaign and they was battling now, Bernie Sanders, da, 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 da. This is the first time that they mentioned trans specifically. Yes, they would say LGBT, but trans specifically on stage as, at a Democratic primary. Yeah. The very first time that they ever mentioned it and talking about, they literally had a, a trans woman t- speaking on the stage that never has happened. And so now it brings a spotlight to our community. And so we get 2016 when Trump does win, Oh my God, um, military ban. Even though if you pay attention right before Trump was winning, Trump was saying positive stuff about trans people because he had trans, he had accepted trans people on uh, in the pageant. He, you remember he owned a pageant he had accepted. So it was, he had nothing but positive stuff to say about um, trans people initially. And so it wasn't until he got into the Republican Party and had to rally his base that he got to that anti-trans stuff. Because early on, he was saying positive things, like as far as like them being in the military, like, who cares? (laughs) He was very like, what? (laughs) Yeah. And so, but then when he needed to rally his base, then he switched to the, let's do a trans military ban. 
Let's do, you can say it's all performative and shady. And so we have gotten to the point where we have been, we are a national discussion. So what comes with that is the positive of moving forward on a visibility level. We got polls, we got all these um, celebrity, yeah, all of that. And we got these celebrities, literally trans celebrities that we didn't have. There was kind of fringe back in the day, but now they're winning Emmys and they're winning Golden Globes and getting nominated, getting nominated for Oscars and all these kind of things. Um, so the positive is that community building. The negative is the hate, the vitriol. We have reached the peak level of black trans women being murdered at record numbers. We have we have people being attacked, videos going viral of them not only being attacked by cis men, being attacked by cis women. Iana Dior in Minneapolis in the middle of a rebellion. George Floyd rebellion. Yeah. Yeah, so we have these things happening. So there's a positive that's happening and then there's a negative that's happening. And and so that just that just there ain't no there ain't no change that ever came to this country without there being some kind of bloodshed. And so that's just the that's just the truth. And so we are in that those bloodshed moments. We are coming to the peak of the hill and I just want as less casualties as possible. Um, and I want to be a voice in creating that smooth transition from um, where we were to where we, it's going to be a constant, it's going to be a constant thing, but I just want to, I want the transition to be smooth with left death, with less death. Now, speaking as somebody who identifies as someone of third gender, I identify specifically as Nutois. Um, I started out um, in a binary transition. And then as I've kind of grown in my experience, I've realized that I am transitioning less from one binary to the other and and to um, from a binary to an androgynous presentation, right? How do you suggest people in our community get more involved? Because I feel like I'm someone who the least that I could do in this moment is speak out on my platforms, base my content around um, advocacy and, you know, raising awareness and speaking out and, you know, doing those things. But what do you tell the person that has the passion, has the drive, but feels like they need to do more? Where do you tell them to go and get involved? It depends on the, it depends on, um, it depends on what you're trying to do. So if you're just trying to get more involved in general, there are people already doing the work. How Go find those people and get into how you can support their work. <laughs> like if you, if you, if there are people already out doing the work and on your own, how are you telling your story? How are you, your circle of whatever circle you are in, 
where you have some power, how are you shifting the culture in that circle? For example, if you are in a church group, how are you um, making that church group more inclusive to everybody? If you are a hiring manager at Bath and Body Works, how are you making that hiring process inclusive for everybody? If you are a, 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 house, a housewife who has a great husband and kids, how are you making your home more inclusive to everybody? How are you making your home not a transphobic home? When something comes on TV with trans people, are you allowing every people in the house to say whatever that comes out of their mouth, the disrespectful, some transphobic shit? Are you, are you, are you saying, no, I don't accept that. I don't accept that in my house. That's not gonna happen. Where you have the power, that's what I'm, I wanna be very, very specific. There are gonna be situations where you don't have the power. Um, and, and where you have the power, how are you changing those? Now, where you don't have the power, what are you doing in those situations where you don't have the power? Because that's when you got to make the decision. Am I going to buck up against the powers that be, or am I just trying to get a, get along to get along? I feel like in situations where it's about your money and your survival, get along to get along. If you at work, sometimes you don't want to buck up against that system uh, really, really hard. You want to um, you want to get your money. You don't want to get fired. Do you see what I'm saying? But where you feel like places that don't affect your money, you should be bucking up against that power. You should, if it doesn't affect your survival, buck up against that power every single time. Do not let, if you in this circle that has nothing to do with your job and you hear some transphobic shit happening or you hear some anti-queer, anti-black, anti-dark skin, some colorist shit. That's when you speak up and say, you you are being an asshole. You are, no, that's not right. That's not, you call it out. Don't make it comfortable for them people to say, to do whatever it is. Don't let it be comfortable. Buck up against that power. Um, what else? So I also think that you have to be more, like I said earlier, you have to be a more imaginative, imaginative of where and what you can do to be effective. Some people think, oh, I gotta go march. I gotta go march. <laughs> I gotta go and knock on doors to get these people elected. Oh, I gotta go vote or I gotta, these basic things. All those things can be amazing, yes. But <laughs> there's other things that you can do. Let me give you a famous example. You know, Toni Morrison. Mm -hmm. Toni Morrison said, girl, I'm not the girl to be out here marching in the streets getting sprayed by holes. Or getting... <laughs> I'm not that girl. I'm a, I'm a Princeton professor. I'm a, I'm a, um, you know, I'm a Howard alumni. I'm a teacher. I'm a, a college professor. That's not my spiel. That's for the young kids. I'm older. So what, you know, what can I do? You know what she did? She moved her job, not moved it. She, um, she, the power that she had at her job, she went and got uh, Muhammad Ali to do his, because she was an editor um, at a publishing company. Um, she went and got Muhammad Ali to come and get a, a book deal so that he can write his autobiography. She says, I'm about to go get a 20-something-year-old um, Angela Davis and get her to write women, power women in class or class women in power. I can't remember the exact book, but um, her book. 
she went and got all of these black authors who was in movement work and say, you need to write a book. You need to create a literary snapshot of what's happening in the world right now. And you need to, we need to, so that people can know what was happening from our perspective, not from the white people's perspective. And so that was where she had power. And that's what she can bring forth to the world. That a, That's a creative way. Yeah, I can go march, but that's not what, that's not me. And so let me do what I can do. I'm a writer. I'm an editor. This is what I can do. So imagine whoever is listening, what can you do to bring about change? What can you in your power do? Don't think that it's just you marching or you voting or you doing these basic ass things. There's something that you can bring to the table. If you're a sculptor, how are you including trans images in your sculpt, in your art? If you are, if you are, um, and take it out of trans and put it like colorism. If you are an artist, how are you bringing more dark skinned people into your art so they can, so they can be portrayed as beautiful? If you, for example, me as a podcaster, I have, at one point, not intentional, but I had nothing but light-skinned hosts. I was very intentional in making sure that my guests were dark. Mm-hmm. I'm a pro-black activist who wants to dismantle colorism. As a light-skinned woman, I wanted to be very, very clear in um, the people that I chose to be on my show. And so, because of that image, because I knew that my our image was light. That wasn't my intention, <laughs> but you know, those were the people that were available. And so in that regards, I was very intentional about the, the people that I picked, people that I chose. Um, and so you have to think about it that way because you want to display, um, you want to dismantle um, these systems that we're, that we're working in. And the same thing, go to your, um, to your house, the images you wake up to, what pictures you have on the wall, what people you have on the wall, what 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 images are you reflecting? I know we queer people, I know it may not be in y'all generation, but in my generation, every you go to every gay boy's house or every trans woman house, she got Marilyn Manson on, not Marilyn Manson, Marilyn Monroe on the, Marilyn Monroe on the wall. Every gay father I had, every trans woman I knew, every drag queen I knew had a big picture of Marilyn somewhere. Marilyn, the the white 50s starlets, that beauty icons. And not saying that they don't have a place somewhere, but how are you dismantling that image in your own home? We know that is peak white feminism, not white feminism, peak white um, beauty standard. Where are your peak black beauty standards? Where's Dorothy Dandridge? Where's Lena Horne? Right. And and all of them is red women. All of them is light-skinned women. Where's the dark-skinned women? Where's Where's Grace Jones? Where are these, where are these, Pearl Bailey, go back further. Where are, Bessie Smith, where are these women who don't fit that beauty standard that you want them to be in that beauty standard? How are you, exactly, where you control? This is your house, bitch. (laughs) <laughs> we can't we can't control the powers that be on cbs nbc da, 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 that make the commercials the people with the money we can't control the image they put out yes they're going to be a white supremacist beauty and white centric um eurocentric beauty standard that they put out because that's they shit that's they, they but you in your house where you control how are you controlling it because you know it's wrong you know colorism is wrong. You know anti-black is wrong. So why in your place would you have this peak white woman's beauty up on your wall? 
Not saying that you can't have her at all, but if she's the only one, that that doesn't make sense. If she's the center where you have the power to control, I think you have to control it. I I appreciate that because you know I've based my um my investment and my involvement in you know the movements in my content because I'm an artist I do music I create content I do graphics so I think I've always inherently kind of surrounded or based my content and the things that I created artistically around the statements and the movements that I wanted to portray like my mixtape that I put out is a love letter to you know queer people of color um I've had a whole podcast about you know what it's like to be black and queer while you know being in America um my Mm. channel talks about the inadequate the inadequate the inadequacies and social awareness within the pop culture space and reality television. So I'm talking about the colorism on the Real Housewives of uh, 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 Potomac, <laughs> right? And you know the racism down to the Beverly Hills, and I'm talking about you know um, Joe Rogan down to the Spotify, like Jimmy Kimmel's thirty year thirty year racist ass career. Like it's all of those things and people the majority of my backlash that I've gotten for that is like it's not the time and place that's for politics that's for this that's for that and I'm like but if these are the images that you're directly consuming on a more regular basis you're not watching C-SPAN every day you're watching the housewives you're not watching CNN every day you're you're watching love and hip-hop so why would I not call out the very or not even call out, acknowledge the same inadequacies that we're seeing from white people, from politicians, from that, in the same things that we're bringing into our homes every day, to your point about Marilyn Monroe. Um, I think, you know, I really relate to your point on that because when it comes to raising my daughter, I've always been very specific and very intentional about keeping her um mostly surrounded by you know black images so i've only bought her black books black baby dolls we watch you know the proud family we watch low bill we didn't watch caillou in my house you know what i'm saying like like i can like oh, like i made sure that she saw herself as represented as possible so she didn't go out in the world and be like why don't nobody look like me why don't you know i wanted her to have a real registration of her blackness from the very beginning when she goes out into the world she never she would never feel different you know, and to take that to allyship, what do you define as an ally and how do you think or how do you suggest allies be adequately and pro- and proactively and productively involved going into 2023 and beyond? Oh, it goes back to that power piece where you have power. And how are you transferring that power and those resources? That's what allyship to me is. To me, it is, if you know that there is a better person who can talk about this issue, bring that better person in. If you know that these, that they haven't done, if you are a curator of a show and you haven't brought trans people in to talk about the issues, why haven't you? Bring them in. If you know that um, 
that you have a trans person that's working on your staff, how are you putting them in power to do what they need to do? Like allyship is action. Like it's not just saying, oh, I support you. That's advocacy. That's an advocate. That's a, but a person who is an activist, it's action that's in the root of that word. There is an action that happens. There's something that you do. And it's not just talking. It is action. And so allyship for me that is efficient is actually doing something that empowers, doing something that resources me, <clears throat> doing something that, um, yeah, empowerment and, and resources. That's really what it is. It's about not giving me space to do the work that I'm already doing. It's about bringing me into rooms that I normally wouldn't be in. Um, Yeah, that's just, to me, <clears throat> excuse me. Oh, bless to you. me, that's what, um, that's what it looks like. It's the actions. It's, it's using whatever power, whatever resource and transferring. No, that doesn't mean that you don't have a job. No, I don't want you to give up your survival and give up your position unless you can give it up without and still survive. Yes, right. give that motherfucker up. But <laughs> that's just what it is. But if you, if we're not, I'm not asking you to give up your survival. I'm not asking you to take money off your table if that is food out of your mouth yes but if you have a plethora give up some of that privilege give us some of those resources it's nothing for me somebody to I, I, I have been so many times somebody asked me to be on their show and they're and they want to talk about colorism yes can i talk about colorism absolutely but i am not the perfect person to talk about colorism my high yellow ass that's i there's gonna be people who are much better equipped to talk about colorism than me. I can give you what I know, but you need to, I got so, I can, I can suggest you these dark-skinned people because it's better, they're, they're gonna have a better view and better um, experience with explaining how colorism affects their lives, period, more than me. So how can I, as a, you know, if I'm in this space, how can I ally them? suggest them bring them to the party in that regards um what else i feel like and this is anything cis women how are you including trans women into the conversation um gay men when you're getting these hiv coins these um non-profit hiv coins how are you including trans women in the conversation how are you bringing them in because they are a part of that number of, of, of being high risk. And so how are you doing that? White women, feminist, liberal white women, because we, we know the conservative is gonna sell us out. That's, that's how they do. They on the side of patriarchy. But the ones you feminist, liberal white women, how are you bringing black queer women into the fold? How are you bringing them? How are you supporting them at your job? How are you making it easier for them to get to your position? How are you moving barriers out of their way? Black women in, in corporate, in corporate positions. 
how are you opening, leaving the door open for, you know, so you're not just the exceptional Negro? How are you bringing other people into the fold? How are you leaving the door open? Because a lot of times we'll get up in these positions and hunker down and not let anybody get through. I'm the special Negro. I'm the magical Negro that can talk to these white people, not you. Tokenism, Jeff. That right. People get into that tokenism space and love it. You're doing the wrong thing. You pose a buster door open and make it and make it easier for people to come in. Skinny people, how are you bringing plus-size people into your conversation, into your imagery of your brand? How are you doing that? It shouldn't be just Lizzo. Hello. It shouldn't just be just Lizzo taking the brunt of this work. She's not the only one, but you get what I'm saying? She's the one that got that gets the spotlight, spotlight right now. Yeah. Right, she's the face. It shouldn't be, she shouldn't be the only face. And so how are you, how are you doing this work? If you are an ally, if you believe in the dismantling of fat phobia, how are you doing it? These are the things you gotta be conscious of. How are you doing it within your own work where you have power? And how are you, um, you know, co-conspirating with them? How are you doing that? That is what allyship is to me. I love that. You make me feel like I'm on the right track. <laughs> you feel like I'm out here doing something right. I'm like, whoo, child, okay. Okay, okay. We ain't just in the void out here. We ain't just wandering <laughs> in the space. <laughs> we, we have a goal. <laughs> We're on some sort of trail here. <laughs> All right. What are, your, what are your feelings on the state of the actual trans community in today's society? How do you feel we, as a trans community, we as a third gender society, how do you feel that we're actually doing interpersonally with each other today? With each other? That's a great question. Um, I see positive and I see negative. I see the positive is that there is more representation. There's more visibility. There, there's more of us seeing each other, sharing each other, talking about each other's experience, coming to each other's defense. There is more of that. There's more, the visibility piece is amazing. I, the girls coming up and boys and non-binary people, we have somebody to see ourselves in. We have somebody to see, uh, it may not be a lot, but we have somebody, I, as, a, as a trans, as a binary trans woman, I I can look at a Janet Mock. I can look at a um, uh, MJ Rodriguez, Michaela Rodriguez. I can look at um, Dominique Jackson. I can look at you know so many different people. Um, ooh, um, Kachanga, the writer Kachanga, um, yes. in 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 London, Berlin. Um, I can. There's so many different people that I can see and be like, oh, these are possibility models for me. And so, in for me, I think that's a beautiful thing, but we have to get past visibility. Visibility is great and seeing it, but there has to be actual tangible survival mechanism, tangible actions that are creating spaces for us to survive. There has to be those. And I think that um, we cannot perpetuate some of the things that the cisgender community is perpetuating on our side. We didn't get out of this box to create more boxes. We didn't get, 
we didn't get we didn't we didn't break the mold of the binary or break the mold of gender to come and create rules and um and things that we can't nuance and we can't make more malleable for somebody else coming in and trying to shake it up so when i as a non-binary as a binary person looking at um a low mignon i can't look at that person them and say oh you got the hair on your chest oh you got the hair on your legs and you run around in a skirt with your dick out and the mustache and da, 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 da. i can't look at that yes i can look at that for myself and be like oh no i don't want to do that that ain't but, me that ain't me <laughs> But I'm not looking at you and saying, oh my God, you're a disgrace to our community. Oh my God, you're confusing the cisgender people. Them motherfuckers gonna be confused anyway because they don't want to understand you. So it don't matter if you got a beard, you got a, every trans person got a clean face. Every trans woman got a clean face. They, they, they don't want to understand you. So it doesn't matter. <laughs> so why are we, why are we, deciding how we treat our people based on these motherfuckers. They want us to die. They want to criminalize us. Don't nobody give a fuck about them. But these people on our side, shifting, making it okay. Look, I'm a binary trans woman. If a loc can be free with their beard, me having a little stubble because I can't afford a laser this month can get by a little bit smoother because a loc got a beard. So of course I can be, this little stubble I'm getting for this week until I can go to get my laser can be a little bit more free. But that's what we're talking about. When you free the most marginalized of us, and I don't think a loc on a, on a resource level is marginalized, but when it comes to being visibly trans, I'm a, I'm a blending woman. I can go out and people just assume that I'm a cisgender woman. And so I'm not pushing the envelope in that in that way that a low kiss. But we need people like that to push the envelope. And so that that's what I feel. I feel like we we have to support our people, even if we don't understand it. Even if we we still need a little bit more interpersonal conversations to get us on board. And I'm seeing a lot of people being stubborn about understanding other people's identity in the gray areas, even out, even the gray areas outside of what they battled against. So, yeah. You know, it, you know, it's crazy that you say that. And I thank you for making that statement because that affects me personally. Um, you know, even outside of a content creation space, when it comes to my own transition, you know, there was a lot of decisions that I made to not transition until I was 27 years old. I'm 29. Well, I'm 31 now, but I really like, like there was a, there was a shift that I made around 29, 30 that I really leaned into the androgyny that was natural to me but i say all of that to say the reason why i didn't transition earlier in my, in my life i knew that i was trans since i was eight years old like i've known my entire life i knew you know my first round of of depression was me starting puberty and thinking that i was in, thinking that i was in intersex and boobs never grew like cue the body dysmorphia <laughs> like, <laughs> right. <laughs> but I recognized and acknowledged myself as a trans person when I was 15, when I joined my first house. Shout out to the house of Chanel. 
and I met my first trans woman and I was like, oh, okay, got it, right, makes sense. The problem was at that point, this was like the mid aughts, like the early 2000s, mid 2000s, right? There wasn't really a conversation happening about trans women where that didn't involve full sexual reassignment surgery, right? So I was kind of, or I internalized conversations about transitioning as, well, if you're not trying to go all the way, then you're not ever going to be a real, you ain't doing what we doing out here. Like, like, like that, that don't count. You, 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 you know what I mean? So I held on to that for a long time and I never transitioned because I was like, well, that's not, I'm not the stereotypical traditional trans woman. Like I like what I was working with because I never had any dysmorphia around that because I grew up thinking I was intersex. Long story about that. But it wasn't until the past five years where I heard conversations about, you know, third gender identities and T.S. Madison came into my, you know, wheelhouse of being the first trans woman that I saw that was comfortable with her genitalia the way that it was pre-op. I had never seen that before or heard that conversation happen before. So I say all of that to say, getting into my content creation and going through my journey and beginning transitioning, I was starting a YouTube channel all at the same time. It was crazy. I was one of those new girls that was documenting the whole transition. I didn't do the whole, this is my first day on estrogen. This is my, this is my that. Cause I was like, I'm a year in and I don't see any change. So like, what, like, like what is there to document? But that's unimportant. Um, I got a lot of pushback from people in the in the trans community because I was quote unquote not trans enough. And it really, I felt a lot of pressure in the beginning of my transition to be a binary trans woman, even though it never felt like I didn't feel comfortable in a male binary. I also didn't feel comfortable in a, in a solidified, staunch, right off all the way over here, female binary either. Like I realized going through transitioning, I didn't feel comfortable in a binary period. So it was hard because in the same way that I felt hesitant to transition because I didn't want to be a stereotypical traditional trans woman, I also felt the pressure to transition into a binary trans woman because I was transitioning. It was a, a lot. And I felt like there wasn't space for people like me out there. I'm starting to see them now. Um, but I've that's been my main struggle when it comes to, to to transitioning because you know that's why I specifically identify with neutral versus agender because there's a specific note in the definition of neutral that speaks to a physical transition, right? And I feel like, you know, the, all of those things encompass that. But I appreciate somebody in your space validating third gender identities, the, the nuances and the lack of binary even in a trans space. Mm -hmm. Because I think that, that that's important. And I get it. We're just getting to the conversation about trans people. Like you were saying earlier, like they just got the, they just got the gays out the way. They just working their way over here. So I get like, we're not gonna have- That doesn't mean our, our own community just got here. Yes, we've been around for a year, but we're talking about the larger community that has the power to shift our 
um, our living conditions. <laughs> Correct. And that's why I wanted to have that conversation with you about how we treat each other because I feel like there's only so much that we can do on, you know, interacting with them on the outside, especially when we're not solidified in numbers as a community. So you have to understand that we're never going to be you. If you accept that, yeah, we're never going to (laughs) be, we're never going to be on all on one front there. But that doesn't mean we can't accomplish goals. There was, uh, um, uh, 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 it's called, it's, um, what's her name? Um, June Jordan. It's a June Jordan or Barbara Jordan. Oh, I can't remember. Oh God, why is this name? This is one of our black feminist icons. Why is it? Why is it leaving my brain? Oh, I can't remember. Um, she did a report from the Bahamas. It's called. It's an essay called "A Report from the Bahamas." God, why can't this name? I think it's Barbara Jordan or June Jordan. Please, uh, please um, correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, it is the report of. Um, a report from the Bahamas and what she's ta- she was talking it was a class conversation about how you can work with some people mm-hmm. what June Jordan yeah yeah okay I was like I think that's it <laughs> anyway so uh, June Jordan sometimes I don't trust my mind child and so <laughs> sometimes um so she the conversation she was having about that she had went to the Bahamas and she was seeing a difference in people work class and how you know, even in black people, there was a different um, view in in regards to class. And one of the, one of the things that she really emphasized was, "Yo, we can get, we can be aligned in one point and get to the to, to get to a goal, and then once we get to that goal, we can separate <laughs> because we have different views." But at least we can work together to get here. We can get to point A. We might not be going to point B together because you don't agree with point B. But to point A, we agree on. So let's get to point A. And so, do you see what I'm saying? Like, um, there is a element of we, there's gonna be some of us that's gonna branch off because we think differently. Think about civil rights movement. I always, you know, I, I, cis folks hate when we do this, when we make a connection, the parallels between our movement, the LGBT movement and the black movement, but <laughs> it is what it is. Okay. And so, <laughs> sorry, um, but there, like for example, there, there was a time when assimilation was the only way we could get to a point of survival. Okay. There was a time when acting white, speaking white, aligning with whiteness, that was the only way you was going to get something. Right. Period. And so people who grew up in that era, they don't understand, and this era spans a long period of time, they don't understand the people who say, I don't need to be that. I can speak my AAVE. I don't need to be that and I still have value and I can have my blue hair and dreadlocks in the corporate setting and still be a great worker. Mm-hmm. I don't need to have straight hair. I don't need to adhere to this whiteness. And we have moved the needle enough to where they can have enough power to do that. Mm-hmm. And so there are going to be some people 
in the trans community who hold on to that old ideology saying, oh, I got to be as passable as possible because that's where my safety, that's where my safety lies. Yep. And so you being like you are, ooh, that just make that just feels so uncomfortable to me. And I may never get to that point where I'm like, ooh, that's comfortable for me. There's going to be some people who never be there, but they don't need to be there. But I want to make it very clear. They don't need to stop you from getting you to your goal. That's when it becomes a problem. When your ideology about how you live your own life start to to impart its own rules and regulations on somebody else's life. That's the problem that we are having. Like you trying to be free and be this um, non-binary person does not impede on my life at all. And if you think that it does, you got some work to do. You got some reading to do. Because you being non-binary, running around with a beard, da 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 If I'm this binary woman, girl, you a woman. Do your thing. What I got going on don't got nothing to do with me. And I know your brain is telling you, oh, they're going to confuse um, Sean with Diamond. No, they're not. When Diamond come in the room, she gonna be Diamond. When I come in the space, you gonna know I'm what I am. Right. Period. And I think my entire stance is like at the end of the day, me and my presentation doesn't inflict on the validity of yours. Of mine. People have looked at me and been like, well, you make the trans community look bad. That's the one comment I've gotten that's never... <laughs> And I'm never one to read comments, but I get notifications. So like, I, I I got one comment once, and it was saying like I make the transgender community look bad. Yes, and, I, and that's Bill Cosby and you. Yes, that shit never. That shit hit different because I was like, Yo, am I getting Cosby right now? You like, are. Like, am I getting a pull your pants up? Like, am I? Yes. That like what happened? And for people who may not understand what we're talking about, Bill Cosby, before he was exposed as the uh, rapist, um, pill, drugging people person, he was also a classist person who talked crazy about um, other black people. People, yeah. He was that person. <laughs> and there are there is a sector of people who feel like that ghetto, that it's a class conversation. If you are not adhering to the assimilation of black people, you're ghetto, you're low class, da 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 da. It's that same vibe. If you're not adhering to the binary, then you're embarrassing us. No, bitch, I'm not. I'm being me because that binary is fucked up. You may be okay with it. You may be safe in it. You may, but I'm not safe in it. And so now what you gonna do? Now that you know, now that I'm telling you that I'm not safe in that binary bullshit. I'm not mentally safe there. I'm not I'm not safe there. So now what you gonna do? Just like you expect cis people to save you because you wasn't safe in the gender, the gender part, and you expect them to make accommodations for you. I need accommodations for me now because the binary is not safe for me. So what that. you gonna do? That. Are you gonna be a hypocrite? Are you gonna are you gonna make excuses? That's what you're doing. If you're not helping me and you wouldn't accept that for you, you wouldn't accept that for your shit. 
it's so psychotic because I found myself having these conversations and I was like, it's crazy that I as a queer person have to have these conversations with black people and then have to go into eh, 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 into the queer community and then have to have these same conversations with queer people. I was like, well, damn, I can't get no, I, I can't get no understand. Where is escape when you need them? Can I get some understanding from somewhere, please? Yes, it's just not going to be an escape. There's going to be people at different points. Your mind and the rest of the <laughs> We have all the songs. So, once I understood that everybody is going to be on a different page when it comes to um, where they are in the journey about race, about colorism, about misogyny, about the binary. Everybody is going to be at a different place in their journey. And so, like I said early in the beginning of this interview, you have to decide when this person can be moved and when this person cannot be. And if they can be moved, yes, and you got the patience and you got the time, yes, spend your time explaining some things to them. But if you don't, let them people just go mind your business. Let somebody else do that work. What what's the new little meme? Let let's uh, find somebody else to do it. Okay. <laughs> I ain't gonna be able to do it. Mm-mm. Find somebody else. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Who are your personal heroes? Oh, personal heroes. Gosh. Um I have to say my mom and my brother. They are, uh, that, 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 that's first to come to mind. Um, my mom passed away in 2020 of a fentanyl overdose and nope. she battled that addiction from, from the 90s. But what she instilled in me is confidence. She instilled in me a rebellious spirit. She instilled in me that who I am is all I have in the world and I have to protect it. And so she is one of my personal heroes, even within all her flaws. That is what I learned um, from her. So she is one of my personal heroes. Um, Fannie Lou Hamer, Nikita, James Baldwin, Monica Roberts, my aunt, um, Roslyn. This is like my altar that I show everybody while I'm, while I'm doing it. Um, Grace Jones, Diane Carroll, yeah. Tracy Africa, um, Josephine Baker, Donna Luna, um, I have a trans artist here that I love, um, Jackson. Um, I have a whole altar here with all of my family. Um, yeah, it's just for me, um, people, Polly Murray, personal heroes, um, current living, um, Arya Saeed, T.S. Madison, um, all of the starlets of Hollywood, the trans starlets of Hollywood right now, Angelica Ross, um, Laverne, um, Michaela, all the trans starlets, ballroom legends. It's so many personal heroes that I have that because I respect history, even the nameless ones. I remember I found an article in, in one of the archives here in Texas about a trans woman that when um, the Juneteenth happened, you know, the slaves and the why Juneteenth exists is because the slaves didn't find out that they were free in Texas. Right. When one of them found out that they were free, they transitioned and their name was Lizzie Montgomery. 
And so imagine we don't connect transness with slavery and how it impacted queer people. I did it. But when I seen that in an article of them talking about Lizzie Montgomery transitioning once she became free and started living her life as a woman, it indicate you're not gonna be able to look her up. <laughs> but <laughs> because she's the, the paper, the paper is actually in in an archive that you have to physically go see. Um, a place that you can go look up the the clipping of the paper. I put it into the. Um, the digital transgender archive.net. If you go there, you can look up and read it. Um, but her name, her, you know, of course, because it's cis people writing it, they misgender her and was like, um, you know, Dick Montgomery now lives as a woman, Lizzie Montgomery. And so, and they explained that on the year of Jubilo, Jubilo is the um, Juneteenth, they're another word for Juneteenth, and that she transitioned. And what it indicated to me that, first of all, we were in slavery. <laughs> That's first of all. Um, and second of all, is that something about the culture said, I couldn't do it while slavery was going on, but I can do it now that slavery is over. And so what it indicates that somehow in her, in her black community that she was going to be living in, it was okay to be who she was. Because why would I do it right then? <laughs> and we had to be in community. Does that make sense? So Absolutely. clearly, clearly the black community was some kind of different than it is now. <laughs> um, that, that assimilation conversation. Exactly. When you, we, because at that point we couldn't really assimilate into whiteness. It wasn't, they, there wasn't nothing that could happen yet. We had we, to have each other. Yeah, we were too fresh in the game. <laughs> too fresh in the game. And they were too busy trying to get us back into slavery. And so um, so not even that assimilation, but we only had each other. So I'm gonna be that girl. And that is what it what it indicated to me. But also there's other people like Frances Thompson. She was the black trans woman who was raped with her cisgender woman roommate in 1866 during the Memphis riot, the Memphis riots. Um, Frances Thompson, she, when slavery was over, well, they were over with that shit. Because remember, it was 1865. <laughs> so 1866, the white men still was mad. And so they had terrorized um, the this neighbor, this, this area, this black area in Memphis. And they went into this house and it was Lucy and Francis there. And Francis was living with Lucy at, you know, in her truth as a woman. And they raped both of them. And she is the first trans woman that that testified in Congress against these men. It was 11 women, including her. Mm. 10 years later, the doctors arrested her to force her to prove that she was a woman. And they found out that she was male. Mm. And so they tried to go back and recant her test testify. How can you be raped if you really are a boy? But not understanding, you can be raped. <laughs> I still got a hole, motherfucker. And they sent her to prison and she died in prison, detransitioned in prison on a chain gang. And so that story indicates that prior to them wearing her out, she was in community with cis women. 
she was in the black community because she lived in the black area. So it indicates that there was some time in our history in America, our black American history. We know that tons of shit happened in Africa. We know tons of queer expressions in Africa. We know that, but I'm talking about black American history right here on our land, uh, native land, but us building this country. Wow. Um, <laughs> and us already had been here before they came too. Anyway, so, um, and when I say being here, I'm not talking about being here before the natives. I'm talking about being here in community with the natives, a part of their culture. That's why we had dark-skinned Seminoles in Florida, because we had Africans that were coming over, trading and engaging with natives for centuries before slavery existed. So that's what I mean. I don't want it to be confused that I'm saying we were here before the natives. No. Right. <laughs> we were yeah. here in community with them, with the natives. And so... And so in that space, it lets me know that we were in as on a black American history front, we there was a space where queer people, trans people could actually feel like, oh, I can exist as a woman in this space. And you go back and I'm giving you all these examples. Mother George, Mother George, because I'm a, I'm a historian at heart. Mother George in Gray Falls, Idaho. You don't think about blackness in fucking Idaho. <laughs> but Mother George in Idaho was a midwife who delivered over 1,500 babies. She was the best midwife in that area. And she was running from slavery and came all the way to Idaho and found a place and found a job that she can do. And nobody knew that she was trans. They, 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 nobody knew because they, that wasn't something that just was common, 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 common. But they were like, mm, she had really big hands. She had, she always had on boots. And they were just talking about how there was some queer stuff about her, but they called, she was a woman. They called her Mother George. And so when they found out that she was trans, they started to not claim that they, that they were, she was their midwife. Like that she helped birth them. And one of the people, one of the people's son, who was who was one of the babies that she helped bring into the world, world one of the people was like, I don't want to be ashamed of them helping me come into the world. And I don't wanna, I don't wanna lie about that. And so they told their child and their child created the story and, and archived the story of Mother George. And so these people, these unnamed, unpopular, un, all around this country, all around this world, who actually, you know, pushed us forward just by existing, those are my heroes. Those are my heroes that I look to when I'm when I want inspiration. Because if I can, if I if they can do it back then, right then this little bullshit that I'm going through now, <laughs> not saying that it's not heavy, but they were, this is before everything, before fucking hormones existed. Exactly. And so, you know. Like literally before a transition was even thought of. Thought like, about. Like when the a word social, like right. that, that, there was only presentational transition. Right. Like, Oh man! So powerful, 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 powerful. Those are my heroes. Thank you so much, because I I love like this is, you know, I'm tr like I'm getting to the podcast at some point, but the but the history and the knowledge and the impact of your story and your life and the and the history that you have, I feel like it's so important 
for not only me to learn, because a lot of this I'm familiar with, but you're giving me a bit more details, but for the people listening to my show, you know what I'm saying? I feel like I want to give people as many different perspectives and educations and knowledge and examples and resources to go back and look to so they don't ever feel like stuck. Right. I mean, um, how how do you separate or balance? I'm not sure which is the better word. How do you separate or balance existing in society as any other woman in the world and owning your space in the world as a proud trans woman? Mm, that is a great question. Thank you. So I don't, I, I just got another conversation, um, not an argument, but, you know, a back and forth with somebody that feels like this is a black cis woman. She feels like I'm black first. So my womanhood comes second. Mm. That's not how I maneuver the world. I don't have hierarchies of my identity. I have... I come in the room with every motherfucking thing. I'm not leaving something at the door. I'm not deciding what's coming in first. I'm not. I'm not doing that. I'm coming in the. I'm coming in the space with everything that I bring, everything that I experience, everything that I am. And it is your job to accommodate. It is your job to, if you want to engage with it then if you invited me to the space, it is your job for to make me feel safe, to make me feel comfortable. I am not going to be malleable trying to decide which one is better, which one is more safe. I shouldn't have to do that. I should have, I sh as a human being, I should be able to come into any space with all that I am and feel safe, loved. I deserve it. We all deserve it. And so, I don't separate them in that kind of way. And so there are times when I just don't want to have to deal with the politics where I just want to come into Starbucks and get my coffee and get out. I don't want to be the trans, <laughs> the trans black woman coming getting coffee. No, I don't. <laughs> I just want to be the person coming getting coffee. You get what I'm saying? I don't want to. Uh, there's some moments where I'm just not in that mood. I don't want to be the activist. I just want to sit and chill. I want to sit and feel my feet in in the dirt and the grass. I don't want to be all of these titles. And so, yes, there are moments when I feel like that. But there is no moment that I feel like I need to just be a woman and not a trans woman. Um, it's either all or nothing. So there's moments when I just want to be a person without all the titles. But when there's when I'm coming in the room, I'm bringing all of that stuff, um, and that's just about you know I don't want the bullshit. <laughs> if I can come in the room and be all of that stuff, all those titles, and it still be normal, then yeah. But it's something about bringing your blackness in, bringing bringing your transness in, bringing um, your queerness in, bringing bring all these things that come with shit. And I sometimes I don't feel like that. Um, but but just consciously thinking about separating them no i don't do that 
I, I'm coming with it all. We we learned in our history that making, especially as a black woman, mm-hmm. we learned that putting black first does not help us because there's a whole other system outside of racism, patriarchy, that is harming us. And so when you put black first, black men will throw us under the bus every single fucking time. They have proven it. So we cannot just do that. You have to make them enforce them, bring everything. You got you cannot just be black. Because what happens is when the black advanced, the woman don't. And the people who don't, <laughs> the people who are both black and woman, now they are disparaged. Yeah. <laughs> and that's making it simple, but you can you can reflect that parallel <laughs> to every other identity. Yeah. But that's what I mean. We know it doesn't work. When black men, when black men get black, imagine when they were able to start to get bank accounts. When it was no black people couldn't get bank accounts, it was we all in the same boat. But as soon as they started to be able to get accounts, buy houses, because men were able to get accounts and buy houses and da 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 da. Women were not. Women weren't able to get a credit card until the seventies. So they didn't have the financial power or any kind of power to do anything. But when black men got that, what did they do with it? When they got that power, what did they do with it? They marginalized the women. They started to believe that, oh, we got to mimic whiteness and you are the helpmate and you are the woman. You don't need to do that. I have the power. I'm the head. I'm the lead. And the church solidified this by not letting women be preachers. All of this, they started to be just mimicking what white men did in subjugating their women. They didn't say, oh, now we can have accounts. Oh, women should have accounts too. They should have the power. No, they didn't do that. They threw you under the bus. Yeah. We know this. This is facts. This is documented. And so it shifted. And people want, we want to keep it about race and talk about, oh, the government um, kept the black men out of the home when they started giving women food stamps. And that is an element, but there is a gender inequality element that y'all ignore because black men focus on the race Mm -hmm. because they don't have to worry about the gender. (laughs) And so when it comes to their disparity, they can see 2020 vision on that shit. Exactly. But when it comes to the women, they can't. And like I said, this is just a simple snapshot of the relationship between women and men. But this can be, think about the gay man's getting free and the trans women not. This can be a parallel to any other thing. The passable trans women to the ones who are not. (laughs) You can flip it anywhere. And so that's what it is. Gay people started making money, right? As soon as that activism shit started popping off after the AIDS epidemic and they start getting into this, this HIV fund and getting these resources for HIV, they hoarded it. They didn't bring trans women, even though we were affected by HIV. They didn't bring us into the fold. It was nothing but gay men who were in power in these organizations in the 90s. They didn't bring trans women into the fold. We just now get in positions. Look at HRC. We just got Tory Cooper. We just got um, Kamarian Anderson. We just now getting us into these conversations and centering us. This whole 30 year pandemic. 
40 year. Shit, 50 year. Because it started in the 80, 84, 82. That's when it started to get popping. All the way from the 80s to now. I'm 40. So 40 years. We just now having a conversation about trans people in leadership. I'm not talking about being affected by the, the pandemic, but in the leadership, making powerful decisions about where we go to next. We just now getting on the board of Gilead and on the, you get what I'm saying? We're just now getting there. It used to be just gay men, gay white men. And then when race, <laughs> gay white men. And then when it got a little bit more racially progressive, gay white men, gay all black men. gay black men. And so every that, that's keeping one identity behind and not having a gender analysis, not having analysis about other stuff and not working towards dismantling those systems for the other people that you're leaving behind. That is a common thing we cannot put our identities at the door because we were we will always be in a situation where somebody is tempted to throw us under their bus just for their own identity because they either are blind to it or complacent to it and so that's how i feel about that like i am a i'm a black woman i'm a trans woman i am a queer woman i am a hood woman i am somebody <laughs> who you know what i'm saying i i'm a country adjacent girl because my family from mississippi so i have some things that some residual things from the south that you know, that is just about me. That is just who I am, the creator who I am. So I'm not gonna ever forget all of those things. So I'm gonna, when I bring it into the door, I'm gonna consciously make sure you are accommodating those things as well. And so, yeah, I just, I don't separate them. I love that. I love that. Um, now, getting to the podcast and all of that, with all of your identities, with all of your history, with all of your work, with all of your history, with all of the knowledge that you bring to the table. Tell my audience who specifically is Diamond Styles and what is the Marsha's Plate podcast? Um, I am a black trans woman that grew up in Indianapolis, Mississippi, in Texas. That's the places that in, in Boston, Massachusetts. Um, I am uh, the product of a single black dark-skinned woman, um, brown-skinned woman. She wouldn't, uh, I, I, she has the in, the, in my mind, the way she talked, she talked about colorism in a way that a dark-skinned woman would because she was affected by it. But sometimes when people look at her, they don't, they say, oh, she really was a dark-skinned. But in my brain, the way she, to, because she wasn't my color, um, she, in the way she talked, she was a dark-skinned woman to me. And so um, she, she a, a product of an addiction, some a, a parent who had an addiction, product of homelessness, because my grandmother cooked me out of her house when I lived with my grandmother, because my mother went to prison because she got uh, caught up in the 94 crime bill that Biden and um, Clinton presented. Um, I stayed with my grandmother, my grandmother kicked me out, so I was homeless and, had to go to a group home and stayed there until I was 18. Um, I got custody of my brother when I was 21. And so I helped raise him and he's a productive adult guy that I am so proud of with his own family now. Um, I am, I'm a sister, I'm a girl's girl. So I, I'm a great sister. I'm a great friend with tons of queer community, tons of, I'm just, 
Um, I'm a writer, I'm an archivist. I have a whole, on my YouTube channel, I have a whole 15, almost 15 year um, archive of interviews of trans people, queer people, lesbians, gays, just everything there that's been going on since 2008. Um, I am a historian. I, I'm just so many things. I can't really, I can't really name it all, but Yes, I'm an artist. I'm a singer. I'm a songwriter. You, I got a whole SoundCloud full of my music. I am a, I'm just a everything. And so what I do on Marsha's Plate, Marsha's Plate is a place where we discuss current topics and current things that are going on from a Black trans feminist lens. It is me and my co-host Jay. And we, I started it five years ago. And in September, we hit a million listens. So it is educational. It is, thank you. It is educational. It is funny. It is just, just a great time having conversation about, you know, queer stuff, gender stuff, um, cultural things that are happening in the world on the internet. Um, even sometimes it's just silly stuff like talking about the Grammys or talking about, you know, roasting Kevin Samuels or <laughs> whatever, whatever's going on. That's kind of what we do. Long, it's just it's just a pro pro black, pro woman, pro queer, pro trans um, platform discussion platform. How did you and your co-host connect? Um, my current co-host, so I had two co-hosts in the beginning and one was already my friend and the other one was introduced to me by my friend and, um, and we had just a chemistry and we brought it together and made it work. Um, because the, I, when I first started the podcast, it was two separate people, but because they, one of them had to move and one of them just couldn't do it. And so I had to pick two new people fast because they didn't tell me until way after close to my launch date. So I was like, ooh, who can I pick? And yeah. so um, I brought them two on. I brought Mia and Z on. And right in the middle of us starting, they started dating. And so their relationship woes and wins all played out on the on the show, which was messy and fun and learning experience because most people have never seen two trans people dating each other, a trans woman and a trans man. Most people have never seen that coupling. And so the problems they had, um, we had some of our parents come on who were not affirming and have conversations with them. We just have had a bunch of powerful conversations that every, nobody has ever saw. And then my current co-host, LJ, we have been in activist space together and um, brought him on once um, Z um, resigned and went on to a different work and it has just been an amazing experience with him because we have been in the work together lovely what would you say contributes to the synergies that you have between the hosts um our honesty just on being vulnerable um being able to just freely share our experience without any judgment nice what is the main mission statement that you had when launching the show and how has that grown and changed in the five years that you've done the podcast? Um, it has not changed. The same mission that I had at the first one it, it is, is what it is. I want to share Black trans thought. And so about culture, 
culture and politics. And so that was the goal in the beginning. And that is still the goal now. We we feel that politics is about is in everything. And so, you know, a lot of people are like, oh, like you said, with your, your backlash, oh, this is just not the place for that. Politics is in everything. And if you're trying to ignore the politics and everything, that means you are not ready to dismantle those systems. You, you are comfortable with it. But some of us cannot be comfortable with it. And so we, when we are examining and, and, and taking in this content, we have to respond to it in a way that is dismantling those systems and interrogate it in a way that is dismantling those systems. And so that's what we do on Marshall's Plate. We try to interrogate it even in our own biases, but we try to interrogate it um, from that perspective. Yeah, we want because we want to dismantle them. I agree with that so much because the way that my content kind of got geared towards raising social awareness in the pop culture space was because I kept being triggered by reality television. I kept being like, this is racist as fuck. This is transphobic as fuck. This is ignorant as fuck. Like why, like why is nobody talking about this? And why do I keep getting cussed out by white people on the internet about black trans issues? Leave me the fuck alone. So, <laughs> so that's really how like my content ended up changing. And, um, and it began gearing towards that because I was like, I can't see escapism in reality TV when I'm seeing the, the, the exact same shit that I see outside of my own doors on my screens every day. Like, there is no separation for me, like you were saying about your identity. No, and just because you are privileged enough to ignore it, I am not. So I apologize. I need to pod. But, um... Do you have a favorite or most impactful show that you've done so far on the podcast? Oh, God. Ooh. Uh, it's so many after five years. Um, I think there's one called, there's one Z uh, with Z's father, mm -hmm. um, Z's daddy. That's the one, he has a, uh, a father that is not affirming and we had to discuss that's that just became a Christian and he was trying to use some Christian stuff, but he didn't realize that I am an expert in Christianity growing up in, in it. And so I can use the Bible just like you use it to justify us in the way that you demonize us. And so it was a powerful conversation there. Um, T.S. Madison coming on the show and discussing her impact outside of um, her, what people know, because I've been knowing T.S. Madison for years, like we, not grew up together, but um, we came in the game together. And so um, as far as sex work game, I'm not talking about like the entertainment game. And so seeing her shift from being a sex work mogul to who she is now, we talked about that. So T.S. Madison, um, anyone that I bring on cis women is a powerful conversation. Anyone that I'm bringing my lesbian friends on, or my bisexual cis women friends, we always have great um, feminist conversations. Um, we talked about, there's a one called Bottom Growth and Toxic Femininity. And mm. so the I dismantled the idea of toxic femininity because toxic femininity is really just patriarchy in a woman. <laughs> and so discussing that, um, yeah, so I don't know. I can't, I can't really pick my favorite. Uh, my favorite ones. Um, 
There's also one where I'm talking about that's for Halloween, where I'm talking about this this slasher movie from '83 that had a trans woman at the center. This like a Halloween scary movie called Sleepaway Camp, and yeah, and it was like a trans person at the end that they exposed that they're trans. Well, I won't say they're trans. I don't know what it is, but they were. A, a boy on the bottom and a girl on top, <laughs> and uh, and so it was just a whole experience. And we talk about how that affected me as a child, and you know, it's so many, so many stories. I don't know. I don't can't pick a favorite one. <laughs> how are you protecting your peace nowadays? Traveling. I am spending my money on travel. I I used to be spending my money on just out of bags and da da da. I am spending my money on travel, experiencing the world outside of America. It has opened up my eyes to the privilege of me being American and what I don't have to deal with being here as a trans woman. Um, yes, it allowed, I, I'm, I, I want to dismantle it here, but it also lets me see how blessed I am to be a trans woman in America. Beautiful. Yeah. Is there anything that you feel is necessary to share with me and my audience that I didn't ask or cover in our conversation today? Um, tell your stories. Whatever platform you can use that you are comfortable using, tell your stories, share your experiences. Um, be willing to shift, be open, be mutable. Um, there are some things that you don't know. That is, um, that is just something that is the mark of somebody with wisdom is learning that you don't know everything and that you can shift, you can change your mind, you can get new information and 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 be a new person and be new things and think different things. Don't be stuck in your ways. Don't be stuck because there's going to be some things that have nuance that you need to shift. And so be open to that kind of shift, that new education and new information and open to understand that your experience is not the end all of the world. And there's other experiences that even if you experience one thing one way that doesn't mean that the way they experience is not the truth it's your truth is your truth and your perspective but somebody else's truth is somebody else's truth and though it may not affect you acknowledge it be open to it learn it learn somebody else's experience and be open to that shift in mindset about um anything not just one specific thing but anything because what you went through is not everybody's experience and you can learn from somebody else's experience just like they can learn from yours. Nice. My last question for you before I release you back into the wild <laughs> is what's next for you, the Marsha's Plate podcast, and where can we find you and all the things that you want to promote, your music, mm -hmm. your book, all the, when's the talk yeah. show coming? <laughs> um, you can find me on all platforms, just search Diamond Styles, D-I-A-M-O-N-D-S-T-Y-L-Z. Um, you can find me, I don't know what the future of March and Play holds. We're gonna continue to critique culture, examine gender and race and capitalism and all those systems that we wanna dismantle. Um, you can find my music on YouTube or SoundCloud. Everything is usually on SoundCloud as far as music. Um, my book is coming out this spring i was supposed to come out um in february but i think we kind of pushed back um it's called the love beneath um it is not out yet but it's going to be out called the love beneath and um we know the title um yeah i'm just i'm just i put content out all the time i go live every friday 
on YouTube just to talk about whatever and um, whatever's hot in the streets or talk about whatever my audience want me to talk about. And so, yeah, it's, I'm just going to be out here making content until I die. <laughs> yeah, I am following in your, in your immaculate footsteps, child. I am right there with you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate you so much for being here. Listen, children, on that note, Miss Styles has to go. She has given us the world and I, yeah, yeah. So y'all gonna have to go find y'all, y'all uh, babies on your own, okay? <laughs> busy. But that has been our show. I appreciate every single one of you guys for tuning in to help me to facilitate this conversation. I wanna extend a special, special thank you to one of the most phenomenal women that I've ever talked to. Diamond Styles, thank you so much for blessing this podcast. I can't tell you how much you have impacted me today. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you for having me. Of course, anytime. Please come back anytime that you have <laughs> something going on when the book drops, when you drop <laughs> the album, when the talk show premieres, wink, wink. Um, <laughs> you are more than welcome to come back at any time. Thank you thank so you. much. Have a good okay. day. You as well. I want to remind all of you children, like I do every day, to be real, stay in reality, and always, always bring the realness. I am Sean Ellis Rogers. This has been Real Reality Realness. And until next time, I love you from the bottom of my green heart emoji. Keep the mess in the message and misbehave yourselves. Love you. Bye. Peace. <laughs> Goodbye. Aye, aye. <laughs>